morning. Good to see you this morning. It is good to be with you this morning. It's good to have Orlando back with us. Wandered away for a few years, but I told him when I saw him this morning, it's okay to come back. It's great to be with you today. If you're a guest of ours, we want to know we are honored to have you with us. I want to begin by thanking Anthony and Sydney for filling in in the pulpit the last two weeks and doing such a great job. Two weeks ago, I was actually in uh, Lipscomb University for their summer celebration, and it was fantastic. It was so good. Uh, it happens right before the 4th of July every year, and if you and your family ever are looking for a good place to go and just get Boy, spiritually fed. It's uh, The conference is free. You can stay in the dorms for next to nothing. Um, yeah, I was really pumped. Then last week wasn't so great. <laughs> I wasn't feeling so great last week, and Sydney stepped in and, and took care of the preaching for me. Um, my granddaughter asked me, Timbo, what are shingles? And I told her, I used to think it was something really old people got. Found out I was wrong. Yeah. But I'm feeling much better today. Had a grandson this past week, so my week's getting better and better. Good day. I heard a story about a company that hired a brand new office manager. And he was determined to let everybody's employees know that he was a tough, no-nonsense kind of guy. Because he heard the office, that branch, had got a little bit lax. So his very first day in the office, he comes in, and sure enough, all of his employees are in the break room. They're talking, eating pizza, joking. He storms into the room, gets right in the face of the first guy he comes to. He says, how much money do you make a week? The guy's a little bit surprised. He said, um, I make $500 a week. The manager pulls out his wallet and peels off $500 bills, stuffs them in the guy's pocket and says, get out of here. I don't ever want to see you back in this office again. The guy slowly turned around and headed back towards the elevators. The whole room now is quiet. He turns toward the other employees and says, Now, does someone want to tell me what that worthless excuse for employee did around here? Somebody in the back said, um, He was the pizza delivery guy. <laughs> you know, you can tell a lot about a person by how they handle being in charge, can't you? You can tell an awful lot about someone, how, about how they handle themselves when they're kind of the one who's the boss. You can tell a lot about yourself, about how you handle being in charge. What do I do when I'm the smartest person in the room? How do I act when everybody's looking at me? Well, maybe it's the boardroom, maybe it's the classroom, maybe it's the locker room, maybe it's with your family. How do you act when you're the one in charge? And I think we would all agree that there, there's really nothing more troubling than seeing someone who's in charge and they're leveraging that uh, authority and the power that they have against the people that they're chosen to lead. You know, there's something very disconcerting about seeing someone abusing their authority and abusing their power. And in the same way, there's something very inspiring about seeing a leader who says no to himself so, or herself so that they can say yes to the people that they're leading. It doesn't take advantage of the position that they're in, but actually uses that position and that authority to help the people that they're supposed to be leading. Something very inspiring about that. 
We are in week four of our sermon series on David. And this morning we're going to take a look at how David responds when all eyes are on him. We're going to see how David acts when he's the one who is finally large and in charge. He's no longer an outlaw on the run. He's no longer the kid. He becomes the king of Israel. Is that going to change David? But before we get there, I want to go back and start uh, back towards the beginning. Because we kind of skipped the very beginning of this thing when we got going. Back before we even really know David, the prophet, uh, the judge, a guy by the name of Samuel, the man of God, shows up at the house of Jesse. Jesse is David's dad. David's not there that day. He's off working. And Samuel, this man of God, tells Jesse that he's here on kind of a secret mission. We're going to find out in a minute why the mission was secret. But he tells Jesse, I'm going to have a sacrifice, and I want your whole family to be in here for the sacrifice. Now, the reason his mission was secret was because God had told Samuel the next king of Israel was going to be one of the sons of Jesse, and Samuel was there to anoint one of the sons of Jesse as the king of Israel. And the problem was... Israel already had a king. So if you're going to anoint the next king of Israel while there's already a king in place, you better keep it a secret. So, Samuel shows up at the home of Jesse, tells him they all want to be, they all need to be present for this uh, special uh, sacrifice that's going on, and Samuel thinks, I'll take a look at these sons. One's going to be the obvious choice, I feel, and you know, I'll get the God nod, and, and I'll anoint him as the next king. Here's what the text says. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, I'm in verse 6. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab. Eliab is Jesse's oldest son. You figure, okay, oldest son, that's probably the logical one, right? And thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. Samuel's like, this is easy. First one, first son, first kid. It's got to be this guy, right? Now my work here is done. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance. Now, when you think about it, that's hard to do. I mean, what are you supposed to consider when you first see someone if not their appearance? What do you notice first about somebody? It's not their IQ, right? You know, it's their appearance. And I guess since the beginning of time, we've been putting an awful lot of importance on how someone looks. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height. For I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. In other words, God is saying, it's what's in a man that makes a man. And this is so important. This is such a great lesson. Ladies, you need to listen to this, okay? You're with me here, guys? Are, are these women, we need to hear this. You, you need to pay attention, women, to what's in the heart of a man, not on the outside. you got to get away from the tall, dark, and handsome. Can't, you know, it's all focused on that. Of course, I'm speaking to someone short, fair, and ugly. But, <laughs> but you know, you got, you got to, you got to focus on what's inside, not on what's the outside. Guys, you've got to focus on what... Never mind, you guys are hopeless. But... <laughs> The point that God's trying to make is, I'm not looking at what you're looking at. I'm looking at the heart. That's what's important to me. Six sons later, 
Six sons later. And still, Samuel hasn't gotten the thumbs up from God. Six more sons get rejected by God. And then Samuel finally asks Jesse, and it's got to be kind of awkward, is this it? I mean, is this all you got? Verse uh, 11. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? Uh, and Jesse says, yes. No, 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 wait, no. <laughs> there is still the youngest. But he's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So David, the youngest, shows up. God gives Samuel the nod. That's the one. Samuel goes over and anoints David. Now, now think about how weird this would be. He anoints David, and then he packs up and goes. And all the family, as well as David, has got to be thinking, what just happened? <laughs> What's going on here? Because the text doesn't give us any indication that Samuel told anybody what he was doing there, what he was anointing David for, what he was anointing David to be. But David did know this from a very early age. David knew that God had something special in store for him. David knew that God had something planned for his life. Not too long after this first encounter with Samuel, we see David going to take some supplies to his brothers. He fights Goliath, kills Goliath, uh, instantly becomes famous in Israel. We talked about that. And then for the next seven years, David sort of coexists with King Saul. Everybody loves David. He marries the daughter of Saul. He becomes best friends with Saul's son. The nation of Israel loves David because he's so successful. And of course, as we talked about, Saul grows more and more paranoid, more and more jealous. He hates David. He actually tries to kill David, puts a bounty on his head. So David has to run for his life. And for the next eight years, eight years, David lives as an outlaw. He's running from King Saul. Hiding in caves, living in the wilderness, trying to stay alive. All the while, knowing God's got something in store for me. I mean, God's got something in mind for my life. And it was, I think it was during this time, this, this season of his life, that David is going to learn some really extraordinary lessons. And one of the most important lessons that David learns during these wilderness years is, it's not about me. It takes him a while to learn it, but David learns it's not about me. It is God's will. It is God's way. It is God's time. As David is living his life, as it's playing out, he's over and over again reminded, it is God's will, God's way, God's time, God's will, God's way, God's time. And the interesting thing is, on two occasions, David has a perfect opportunity to take matters into his own hands. One we talk about a lot, one we know it pretty well, especially if you've ever dealt with middle school boys. It's like the favorite passage for middle school boys. David is on the run from King Saul. He's got some friends with him, some, some mighty men with him, but they're running from King Saul. They hide in a cave. Saul passes by with his army, the very cave they're hiding in. Saul gets to the cave and decides he needs to go to the bathroom which is why this is the favorite story for middle school boys. I think maybe it's one of the only places in Scripture that talks about somebody using the bathroom. 
but Saul goes into the cave, the very cave where David and his men are hiding. And so Saul is in a very compromising position here. He's very vulnerable. And David's men see this as a wonderful opportunity for David to solve his problem. And David's men whisper to David. At least I assume they whispered. This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. This is it, David. Here he is. You can finish this. You can end this problem. Kill Saul. Everyone will turn and follow you. And David almost falls for it. David almost does it. But instead, he decides to be a little bit mischievous. David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. It would have been so easy for David to kill King Saul. It would have solved all of those problems that he had. He could quit running. He could quit hiding. But he won't do it. He refuses to take matters into his own hands. David thinks, you know, I, I remember how that worked out last time. And we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. It didn't work out too well. I'm not going to take matters into my own hands. Verse 5. Afterward, David was conscious stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David rebuked his men, did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Everyone's whispering in David's ear, do this. Kill the king. Take the throne. David says, I'm not going to do that. I am not taking matters into my own hands. God's will, God's way, God's time. Well, there's another instance. We don't talk about it quite as much, but it's one of my favorite stories in the, in the saga of David. Not too long after this, David is still on the run. Saul is still chasing David. Saul has 3,000 men at his disposal chasing David. They're in the desert of Ziph. It's nighttime. Saul and his army bed down for the night. Saul does exactly what all kings did back then. He placed himself in the very center of the camp surrounded by 3,000 soldiers, as well as Abner, his bodyguard, so that if anybody was going to get to Saul, they were going to have to come through the whole army to do it. And David turns to his friend Abishai. Someday I'm going to do a sermon series on Abishai. He is my favorite lesser-known character in the Old Testament. He is an amazing guy. But David turns to Abishai and says, Hey, Abishai, i got a really bad idea. You want to join me in my really bad idea? And Abishai is like, is it dangerous? It is dangerous. Is there a chance we'll get killed? A very good chance. And Abishai is like, I'm in. <laughs> what do we do? David and Abishai sneak into Saul's camp. They, they, they tiptoe past 3,000 soldiers who are sleeping, who are there to find and kill David. So David and Abishai sneak right up to where Saul is sleeping. Uh, Abner is there, his bodyguard. They're, they're surrounded by 3,000 soldiers. And Abishai tells David this. I'm also one day going to write a book, by the way, of the coolest sayings in the Bible. This is going to be in it. 
Here's what Abishai, and again, I, I got to think he's whispering. Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. You're standing right here with all these sleeping soldiers. Here's King Saul, and here's what Abishai says. Now, let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of my spear. I won't strike him twice. <laughs> Abishai's amazing, I'm telling you. Hey, David, we kind of missed our chance last time. You know, we kind of let that slide, but, but this has to be God's will. How else can you explain the fact that we're here undetected with all these soldiers? Let's finish the problem here and now. Okay, David, I, I know that you made the vow not to kill the Lord's anointed. I never made that vow. Okay, I get that you don't want to do it. I'm happy to do it for you. Let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of my spear. I won't strike him twice. One shot's all it's going to take. Let me do this. His eyes will open and the last thing he's going to see is you standing over him victorious. Let me do this, David. David tells Abishai, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him. Either his time will come or he'll, and he will die or he'll go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. David is not going to take matters into his own hands. David is not going to be convinced that the ends are going to justify the means. He's not going to try to manipulate God's will to get God's blessing. David said, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to leave that to God. Now, time goes by and I'm skipping so much, but King Saul does die. He dies in battle. Not only does the king die, Jonathan, the king's son, also dies in battle. The two people who come standing in the way of David being king are now out of the way. And you might think that, that David would rejoice about that. You might think that would be reason for David to get really excited, but he doesn't. He mourns the death of Saul. He mourns the death of Jonathan. In fact, he, he writes this beautiful song about their, their death, how the mighty have fallen. He's torn up about the death of Saul. But when Saul dies, the tribe of Judah, remember there's 12 tribes, the tribe of Judah, which is where David was a member of the tribe of Judah, declares David as their king. But there's 11 other tribes, and they don't declare David as their king. We're introduced to a new guy in the story. His name's Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth is another son of Saul. When Saul and Jonathan die, Ishbosheth kind of declares himself as king, and he's recognized as king by the eleven other tribes. And for seven more years, Ishbosheth is king over eleven tribes. David is king over Judah. And there is this constant tension, still, even with Saul out of the way between the house of David and the house of Saul. People keep telling David, you've got to claim what's yours. You've got to go, you've got to go unite the kingdom. We can do this. And David stands firm. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to take matters into my own hands. God's will, God's way, God's time. If those other 11 tribes want to recognize this, Besheth is their king, I'm, I'm not going to get in the way of that. Well, finally... 
Two brothers sneak into Ishbosheth's house while he's taking a nap, and they kill him. They think they're doing David this great service, this great favor. They cut off the head of Ishbosheth, and they bring it back to David, thinking that David's going to be very pleased having eliminated the competition. David does not respond like they expect him to respond. Here's what these two brothers say. Here's the head of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, your enemy who tried to take your life. This day the Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, against Saul and his offspring. So they bring David the head of Ishbosheth, which which sounds so barbaric. It is barbaric, by the way. But you see a lot of people getting their heads cut off and carried around in the Old Testament. And the reason why is nobody had a cell phone camera. Okay? Nobody could prove that the person that they said was dead was really dead without showing a head. So they they cut off the person's head. I guess they could lug the body around, but that'd be tough. So these two brothers bring the head of Ishbosheth to David, and they think that David is going to be pleased. David is not pleased. Here's his response to these brothers. As surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of all trouble, when a man told me Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and put him to death at Ziklag. Now, we skipped that part. But when Saul died, someone came to David saying, Hey, Saul's dead. In fact, I kind of had a hand in it, and you should be really thanking me. David put him to death. That was the reward I gave him for his news. Verse 11, How much more? When wicked men have killed an innocent man in his own house and on his own bed. Now, I would argue that Ishbosheth was not an innocent man, but that's how David saw it. God's will, God's way, God's time. Should I not now demand his blood from your hand and rid the earth of you? So David gave an order to his men and they killed them. So now Ishbosheth is out of the way. And finally, Finally, after 15 years, all 12 tribes recognized David as their king. After living as a fugitive for seven years, after uh, being at war with the house of Saul for eight more years, the text says this. All the tribes of Israel, not just Judah, all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel, and you'll become their rulers. He's saying, David, it was always you. Even when Saul was king, it was always you. I mean, it was obvious you were meant to be the king of of Israel. And we just kind of wondered why you never bothered to, to take it by force. Verse 3. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, all the elders of all the tribes come to David. Notice what he does. It shows such maturity. And it shows such humility. Think about this. All twelve tribes are about to make David king. He has all the power. Finally. He is holding all the cards. He is large and in charge. What's he going to do? How's he going to respond when everybody's looking to him? 
The king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. The text said that David made a covenant with the people. He made a promise to the people. He didn't have to make a promise to the people. He was the king. His word was law. Why in the world, after being mistreated all those years, remember, he's facing a group of elders that did not recognize him as king, that backed Ishbosheth, not him. Why was he making a promise to them? Why was he making a covenant? Why didn't he exact a little bit of revenge? Why didn't he exact a little bit of payback? Maybe earlier he might have, but not this David. Instead, he makes a covenant with them. Why? Well, there's three words in that text, and I, I sort of sort of brushed over them, but three words that tell us why he made a covenant. In fact, I think these three words are probably the, the main focus of the lesson. The king made a covenant with him at Hebron before the Lord. David was acting before the Lord. David is declaring publicly that he is a king with authority, but he is a king under authority. In this moment, David submits himself to God's law. And in doing so, he pretty much submits himself to the people that he is going to be leading. And this, once again, is David's way of saying, I am a king, but I am not the king. Now, when we started this series, I made the comment that never and all of David's ups and downs and victories and losses and, and all of his, his crazy life, he never gets confused about who the real, true king of Israel is. So David is 30 years old. And he reigns over Israel for 40 years. Now, next week, we're going to pick the story back up. But here's my point this morning. David waited 15 years for God to give him what he promised. 15 years of kind of waiting on God. And by the way, it wasn't an easy 15 years. It was a very difficult 15 years. But during that time, I think David learned the lessons that would make him the greatest king that Israel ever had. He learned that leadership is always about other people. He learned that even kings are accountable. He learned that even the most powerful people need to be under submission. And he learned to care deeply, and I mean care deeply, about the people that he was leading. You read the story of David. He loved the people of Israel. He loved God's people. So we said up front in this lesson, when a leader says no to himself, so he can say yes to the people that he's in charge of. It's a really inspiring thing. And it's a really powerful thing. But here's the deal on this. As Christians, that's the kind of leadership that we're called to. As Christians, this is exactly what's expected of us. Not only is this expected of us, this is what has been modeled for us. A thousand years after David is crowned king in Hebron. A thousand years and about 20 miles away. 20 miles north of Hebron. In the city of David, Jerusalem. 
Jesus is going to take this same lesson and he's going to expand it. And he's going to go even further and deeper with it. It's time for Passover meal. Jesus wants to take the Passover meal with his disciples. They are in Jerusalem. They are in an upper room. Jesus knows that the cross is very near. He knows that the, the time is now. Here's how John records the, the event. John chapter 13. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. So we fast forward 20 miles and a thousand years. Now Jesus is in an upper room, in an upper room with his disciples. And he knows what's about to happen. He knows in a very short period of time he's going to be arrested. He's going to be tried. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be crucified. He's been chased all over Galilee. He's been chased all over Jerusalem by the very people who should have embraced him. And, and sort of like David, he was a king, but he wasn't recognized as such. And just hours before his death in this upper room, Jesus knew something. Notice what John tells us Jesus knew. Jesus knew that the Father had put what? What did Jesus know that God had done? Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. In the upper room that night, Jesus knew God has put all things under my power. And that he had come from God and was returning to God. In this moment, in the upper room, hours before his death, Jesus has all the power. He is holding all the cards. He has all authority. He realizes that God has put all things under his power. So what do you do when you're in that position? What do you do when you're the smartest, most powerful guy in the room? What do you do when everybody's looking to you? Well, we know what Jesus did. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. And the disciples are stunned. In fact, we know that Peter's going to say, no, 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 you're not going to do what I think you're about to do. Not me, not to me. We, we've got people for that. No, we, we've got servants for that. You're not going to wash my feet. Besides, you're the Messiah. He got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And Jesus finishes washing the disciples' feet. He gets dressed again. And he sits down. And they're all kind of looking at each other. Could you imagine the tension in that room? Could you imagine the emotions in that room? I did not see that coming. And that didn't seem right. That felt very awkward. I was very uncomfortable with that. Jesus, why did you wash our feet? And then Jesus tells them exactly why he washed their feet. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Jesus wants his disciples to know, I'm not too good to wash feet. And you're not too good to wash feet either. 
Jesus is saying in those moments when somebody has put you in charge, in those moments when, when you finally get the corner office, you finally get the big promotion, I mean, you're finally the one. You're the boss. You're the CEO. Everybody's looking to you. In those moments when you're in charge, when someone finally places the crown on your head, Jesus said, you look for somebody's feet to wash. Because as I began this thing, I I made the comment that how you deal with authority, how you deal with being in charge, says an awful lot about your heart and where your focus is. How are you going to respond when it dawns on you that you're the smartest person in the room? And let's be real clear here. And on some level, in some capacity, you have authority over someone. Maybe you're the dad, or you're the mom, or you're the big brother, or you're the big sister, or you're the IT guy, or you're the manager. No, you're, you're, the, you're the friend that everybody sort of looks to. Almost all of us have authority over someone. And our challenge is to learn the greatness that David learned. Albeit slowly, but the greatness that David learned and the greatness that Jesus modeled. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under His power. Yet during the most intense evening of His entire life, He humbled Himself. He refused to leverage that power on His own behalf. Instead, he served people around him. Jesus said, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. I wonder what the world would be like if everyone who was in some level of authority had that same focus. If every time you found yourself with a decision to make and you, everybody's looking at me, I'm kind of in charge if you would then look for someone to serve. What do you think the world would be like? What do you you think America would be like? What do you think your family would be like if we looked for people to serve? If that was our focus. If we understood it's God's will, God's way, and God's time. I might not see it for a long time, God's in charge, His will, His way, His time. That's the lesson that David learns in those wilderness years. And I hope that's the lesson we're learning as well. Orlando's got a song that we're going to use as a song of encouragement this morning. Maybe there's something going on in your life that you just really need the prayers of people who love you. We would love to pray with you and for you. Maybe there's something else on your heart that you'd like to share with the family here. If you meet us down here at the front during this song, we'd love to help you. Let's stand.